everyone, and welcome to How the Story Got Made. We think some of the best stories are the ones about how the story came together, who was involved, how did the decision-making occur, what challenges did you face? And this is our first episode about the story-building process. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at how HD News, the first 24-hour high-definition news network in the U.S., covered one of the biggest hurricanes in history. We're talking, of course, about Hurricane Katrina. And I'm Paul Adrian, uh, Latiku CEO and co-founder. And on the second half of this program, we're going to look at mentorship because journalism is definitely one of those fields where the new generation always stands on the shoulders of those who have walked this path before. And we're going to talk about the Will J. Wright Foundation, which is there to mentor and nurture those new journalists, particularly people of color. That's right. So if you have questions as we get going, put them in the Q&A or the chat and we'll get right back to you. Now, this program looks back at a moment in time, definitely a moment in time. Katrina, obviously, was historic, but also HD News. And we have three people today from the HD News team. HD News was part of the Voom HD Networks. And if you don't know what that was, it was a magical, a magical entrepreneurial television startup that existed for five years. It was part of a 21 channel suite of HD television channels that was part of the Voom HD uh, networks. It was owned by Rainbow Media, Media, which was a subsidiary of Cablevision. They launched their own satellite. In 2003, they went on the air, lasted for five years. And I gotta tell you, that was the best video by far that I've ever seen on the air at the time, even now, because they had so much bandwidth, that video was just really phenomenal. Well, thank you. <laughs> so um, uh, introducing the guest today, first, Will J. Wright, a former HD News general manager, veteran news guy and journalist for over 50 years at places like NBC, CBS, CNN, and of course, uh, HD News, as we've uh, spoken about before. Hello, Will. How are you? I'm doing great. This is just such a fantastic um, effort to talk about uh, HD news mm -hmm. and what we were able to accomplish uh, back then uh, is uh, high definition was in its infancy and it was it was just unheard of that uh, HD would be so commonplace and we were able to be there and show people what the, the promise of high definition and to and and actually to get it right. Thank you, Will. Also joining us today is Dave Barker, who was a former HD News correspondent, an eight-time Emmy Award winner, who also produces, writes, edits, and shoots, and now is an educator. And as an educator, David uh, mentors newly minted journalists in ways to write and post to the web. He's a professional portfolio, includes a pioneering role at HD News in high-definition news gathering and reporting. Hello, Dave Barker. Hey, how's it going? It is going fantastic. Right. Good to have you here. And finally, the third member of the HD News team who's here today, you will know if you're part of the Latiku family as Jade Curia. That's why I didn't introduce myself earlier. Because <laughs> I knew you were going to introduce me. <laughs> the person who needs no introduction, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. You could say that Latiku's roots are HD News because they were doing HD before HD was cool. And that required an amazing amount of 
effort and ingenuity. Now, the deadline, I remember this, watching Jade and, and Nigel McGregor, the photographer she worked with, their deadline on a regular basis was the FedEx drop because those HD video files, there wasn't a way to ship them over you know, the internet like there is today at Latticoo. They had to mail them you know, overnight to New York where they'd air the next day. If they were gonna go live, now we see live shot all the time, right? No big deal, right? Well, at the time to do HD, it was a huge deal. They had to lug a 300 pound encoder with them, carry it to the satellite truck, which was not set up to do HD news in those days, plug it in in order to do this HD live shot. Yes, it was strenuous, <laughs> kept us in shape. <laughs> Well, so, if, if, uh, I, if I might add, we tried to make that a little easier. Yeah, the, the, the other part of the fun is the fact that we were uh, such a small organization and in its infancy, um, we, we actually had no on air cutoff. Our material hit the air as soon as we got it in our hands because we were 24 7. Um, a lot of our material was on a news wheel, which uh, meant that once it hit the air, we would put it in rotation. And our big challenge was to freshen it up, to make it fresh and new. And so it was really important for us to come up with new and unique ways to try to get high definition into the building. And very often our photographers, um, uh, we mentioned Nigel McGregor and, and uh, the, a very talented group of, uh, of, of tech technicians, they would find ways to get HD over a very bad internet. It would take, what, maybe two hours to give us five minutes of uh, internet, Jade, back then. Uh, when, when, and, and the key was to try to find a hotel that had internet service that was good enough to be able to do it so that, uh, so that they could, on the way to uh, a breaking story, they would kind of survey uh, what was going on in terms of availability, FedEx drops, hotels with the internet. Uh, people had satellite trucks that we could barter with because we were, we were very fortunate to have a satellite. Rainbow One was uh, owned and operated by Rainbow DBS. And as a result, whenever there was a major story, people would contact us and ask us if uh, we had any satellite space for them. And we would say, hmm, we do, but we could possibly bring our encoder and stick it into your truck and get some of our videos. So it, we, we also learned to be good tradesmen and good neighbors. Yes, lots of bartering going on. <laughs> so before we get started with our panelists, we want to take a look at just a snippet of that HD News video coverage of Hurricane Katrina. Unfortunately, I've got it today. This is a poor copy. It is not going to be the HD video in the glory that it would have aired back a few years ago. Hurricane Katrina displaced a million people, a large portion of them residents of New Orleans. I swear I thought I'd seen it all over the last two months. That's what we've been hearing on the bus. That's my grandmother's house. That's my house. That's the store that I've gone to for 40 years. There's my church. There's my school. And they all look like this. Take a look down the street here. I mean, the debris has been cleared, so you can see down the street, but there's nothing salvageable here. And so he and his family joined the ranks of the 1.2 million people displaced by the storm. Physically driven that far? Oh, yeah. After he found himself in the back of the house, water and debris were everywhere, rising fast. But out of nowhere, he found his grandson's boogie board that he had used last summer at the beach. 
It gave him just enough time to get to that tree. We just thank you, God, for her life and, Lord, what she meant, Lord, to the world. We got a call here that this woman had died, obviously. And, uh, you know the role of the chaplain in times of crisis to pray for the families, but also to pray for the deceased. We can't even begin to put a number on the animals who have been rescued from New Orleans. So many different agencies have participated in these rescues. My photographer and I found a dog along the highway on Interstate 10, and we just couldn't leave him there. He was so skittish and so scared. We loaded him up into our truck, and we kept him last night overnight, and he made lots of friends here with the media. Now, dogs and cats very much in need right now. We were up at 6 o'clock this morning. It's now 9 o'clock at night. We probably got about another three hours. We're not doing anything out of the ordinary. This is Media Central here, all the networks. In fact, uh, reporters from all around the world are here. It's great to see that. Brings back so many memories. Some of them quite haunting. Um, as you can imagine, covering Hurricane Katrina. I understand that we do have some audio issues from the studio here in Austin, and we apologize for that. We're working on that as we start this first part of our questions to our panelists. Um, I'll start with you, Will. Can we first talk about the decision-making that goes into sending crews into something like this? And I want to step back and think about 2005. Um, for background, 2005 was the most active hurricane season until 2020 with 28 named storms. So Will's crews, Will was general manager of HD News, his crews had been covering storms all over the map and mostly down in the Florida and the Gulf Coast region. So Hurricane Katrina comes along, makes landfall as a category one in Florida. Then she strengthened to category five going over land. And by the time she made landfall again in Southern Louisiana, she was a category three storm, Will. What were your thoughts as you were um, dispersing crews into that region? Safety, uh, the biggest challenge always as a, uh, as a manager, when, you're, when you dispatch people into dangerous coverage situations, you wanna make sure that, that they're safe, that they have resources, not only to do the job well, but, uh, but to go home to their families at night. And um, I always felt that it was important to make sure that your staff knew that it's, it, their safety was more important than the story when it came to getting the material on the air and, and to the public. We can always find ways to, to cover a story and get back and get back in the game, and uh, even if it's aftermath, but um, to cover a story that is a, a, a raging storm uh, that might not have places for shelter, that may not have food, may not have fuel, may not have communications, all of that had to be thought out before you sent your team in. And in our case, um, uh, we were a, a small and mighty team, so to speak. Um, uh, uh, we um, had teams that were dispatched from Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles. Um, ultimately, we flew people um, uh, in, into New Orleans for, for relief um, out of New York. Uh, and and it, was, it was always important for me to make sure that they were provided for. And I, 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 I think that when you're a manager, um, you have a duty to your team and you also have a duty to your, to your viewers and you also 
have uh, a, 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 you have to have a sense of compassion. And so I never wanted anyone to go into a situation where they would feel as though we, they were not totally supported or they would be stranded. And, um, and, and, that, and that their families knew that the coverage that they were doing would, would, be, would be safe for them to do that. And I, I think that part of that is, you know, there's, when, when you're a manager and you're a parent, it's a little bit of that merges, you know, you're part parent, part manager, you know, you want to make sure you, that, that you're doing all of the right instincts to take care of your people because they are family. And, uh, and the last thing you want is to put them into a place where they're in a dangerous situation and you can't provide for them. You can't keep them safe. And you can't, and you can't, and you can't make, you, you, you can't guarantee that, that they're going to come out of it okay. And Katrina was one of those situations where the more I looked at it, the, the more worried I got for my team. Because uh, before we even went in, you know, this storm started kicking up on August 23rd and it churned across the South until uh, August uh, 31st. So from the 23rd to 31st, that's a long period of time that people are going to be on the road trying to get something accomplished. And you have to provide for that. So when I hear what you say, Will, and, and I realize first, first goal is to bring that crew home safe. Mm -hmm. But I also wonder about they come home but are there emotional sort of mental effects of covering something like mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina where, you know, doubtlessly, you know, Dave and, and Jade, and I remember watching Jade go to this thing and worrying who comes home, do they see something there that they're just not going to forget? Oh How my you goodness. You know, there, there were, there were stories. Well, Jade showed you uh, uh, the, the story about the animals, which was uh, tugged at the heartstrings. Uh, Dave, covered uh, uh, the story about blessing of the dead, that there was a, a group of, um, of religious uh, 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 people who just went up to the bodies that were uh, floating or, or, or laid uh, uncovered. They would cover them and pray over them. These, this, this is very uh, emotionally gripping stuff. And I had similar experience uh, when I was a news director at KRIV in Houston. We did uh, a project. It was an ongoing project. Uh, it took a year uh, for us to do it. It was called City Under Siege. And uh, Dave was part of City Under Siege. And um, they were, in, in that situation, we would look at some of the worst things that would happen to people in the Houston situation, in, in the Houston area. And I would look at those situations and wonder how much of that impact it would have on, on my teams. And I would rotate the teams out the minute I felt that the impact was emotionally disturbing to them. Because quiet as it's kept, reporters and, and photographers and technicians in these situations, they do get PTSD. They can do I, get impacted by it. Can they I say something? It. Will, you sent me to the Luby's Cafeteria Massacre. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. You sent me to 9-11. I was the first reporter in that afternoon into Ground Zero. You sent me to Clichy-sous-Bois in the neighborhoods of Paris. Uh, when those riots broke out, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the uh, it was a totally racial kind of riot that mm -hmm. broke out in the, in the northern suburbs of Paris. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and then of course, Katrina. And so all of, I think a lot of this is you trusted me and I trusted you. Mm -hmm. And it's, I would think at the beginning of, a, of these huge disasters, there's just, you know, gotta be trust. Dave. Well, that, 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 and also a, a sense of, of care, you know, I cared yeah. so much about you. Right. I cared so much about Jade. Right. Uh, I, the last thing I wanted, I didn't want anything to happen to anybody 
that in the sense, in in the course of coverage, because in in the in the final analysis, it's a story that we're covering. It's it's uh, but but it's life and death to reporters. It's their mental state. They have to go to their families, and they have to react to the, in 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 a family setting that 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 keeps them whole, so they don't bring that home and pulls their social and family life out of whack because of what they experience. And you have to be sensitive to that. And I always felt that as a manager, um, you also manage people's emotions of your, the emotions of your team and the strength of your team. Just as you, if, if we, we're, we're gonna talk about mentoring uh, in more detail later on, but, but that's, that's also part of it. You know, you have to constantly feel your staff out. You have to constantly wonder, you know, what is their state of mind during the source of during the course of this coverage? Is it is it damaging to their psyche? Is it is it something that is uh, going to pull them down emotionally? And you want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Dave, was there a time when you were covering Hurricane Katrina where you felt danger, where you felt that you had to negotiate something just to stay out of trouble? Well, uh, to be honest, yeah, when I'd get near police and authority, I did. Yeah, because uh, they were handling, you know, a lot of stuff coming at them, too, and they were trying to get everybody protected. And we're obviously always the, the you know, the, the square peg in a round hole in those kind of situations. So I kind of steered away from authority a lot. Um, I, I, uh, I remember, it, like, maybe not with so much with Katrina, but at 9-11, there's a lot of anger with authority. So we just, we get away because there was breaking of cameras and things like that with, with anger. So I didn't want that to happen. So I steered away from that. But physically, any danger was constantly constantly. Um, I, I don't know if you remember in the beginning, but uh, the airport wasn't open. You had to fly into Biloxi and drive in and even negotiating the roads. We didn't, you would t t take a corner and uh, you see the pictures now. That's going back into the ninth ward for the first time and everything was gone. Um, and going, yeah, I remember going over those bridges and it was, it, you just didn't know what was going to go on. It was just, it was dangerous. There were live wires. I remember that. Uh, and, um, you know what though, um, with the people, with folks, I didn't feel any, anything. I remember around the Superdome and everybody talked about what a dangerous place that was. That was not a dangerous place for me. The ninth ward there, not a dangerous place. Um, it was, uh, again, when people kind of brushed up with each other is where, where I saw problems. So I have the same question for you, Jade, because I seem to remember some stories, um, where you and Nigel, ran into some situations that were a bit iffy. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, again, I would say what Dave said in that I never felt any sense of danger from any of the people there. Uh, all the evacuees that we met with, people who are trying to leave the city. I mean, you gotta imagine, this is the worst day of their lives or maybe the worst of many days ahead. Um, and they would still take the time to be kind and talk to news crews. So you've got a camera on you when you're feeling your worst, right? So this is, I mean, something that would be difficult for any of us. So as reporters and photographers, we were very much cognizant of that. Um, the times that we felt danger, again, to what Dave said, um, was with the police. And again, these police officers, some of them had been working 24 seven for seven days, you know, so they were at their breaking point, but we did have a police officer pull a gun on us. And, you know, we're very lucky that 
you know, we managed to, you know, calm the officer, calm the situation and walk away from that. No one, you know, there was, there were no shots fired, nothing like that. I think it was almost reactionary for him. Like he told my photographer not to do something or go somewhere. And he felt that my photographer didn't listen to him where it was just a matter of having headphones in and he couldn't hear him. Um, so that was, you know, that was the danger there. The people who were really on the edge who had guns, um, things like that. So yeah, we ran into situations like that, but we're gonna have a little advice um, time here. <laughs> and I think Dave will be able to contribute to that as well about how to handle those situations if you are reporting in these crisis areas. And, you know, reporters with a lot of experience will know this, but I will say when I was a fresh reporter in my first year, um, there were a lot of things that I hadn't learned yet. And it was important for me to listen to others to pick that up. So the title of this webinar is How the Story Got Told. And I'm curious, you know, Dave and, and Jade, when you arrived, you know, what was it like and how did that story get told? How did you, you know, get things pulled together for that first broadcast? That you well, made? we didn't. We didn't have a hotel. All the hotels were closing except for one, right, Jade, the Marriott. And I right. bribed a member of FEMA. Uh, FEMA, I think, it was FEMA. There were two floors open, FEMA and the FBI or somebody. And I gave this. I heard this guy liked uh, Heineken beer, so I bought a six pack of Heineken, left it there, and the next day we were able to get two rooms. And there was, you know, only they give you soap and towels, and that lasted until you were there. And I think the next reporter uh, and photographers had to use the same one, but it was, you know, it was a roof over your head because we were sleeping literally in cars and stuff. Cause you could, it, it, everything was closed around there for, for, you know, it was so widespread and you didn't, you didn't want to go sleep in, you know, on the other side of Biloxi or something. Cause then you'd, it, it's an hour and a half drive in and then an hour and a half back. So you'd sleep in your cars or in, in the satellite truck. We, we shared the satellite truck with uh, the BBC and I think some people slept in there. They're, they're, I remember waking up, uh, I don't know if it was a, a nap. I took a late day, a late night nap, woke up at sunrise and there was this green ooze coming out right next to me out of the sidewalk. You know, it was just, it was just the strangest, weirdest thing, you know, ever. If the hotels were um, open, mm -hmm. When they started to, you know, some people would come back and open a few rooms. If they were open, they didn't have any services. So there's no water, there's no electricity. They didn't have fresh linen. So basically, what they said at one point is like, okay, reporters and photographers, news crews, you can come into our hotel and you can stay here, but we don't have any services. And so, literally, at six o'clock or seven o'clock, it would be pitch black in the hallways. Yeah. You would be taking the stairs. That's the way we did it. That's how the story got made <laughs> because you, you had to go through that in order to get the story going. And as Dave said, if you did drive, then you had to find gas, right? Because you're oh, yeah, that gas. Was so you got to go somewhere and get gas and then food. There were days, I don't know about you, but there were days when I just like, I'm just not going to eat. And I would get a cup of coffee from the Salvation Army. Yeah. They were great about. And hot dogs. Remember the hot, hot dogs? dogs? Hot dogs and coffee from the Salvation Army kept us, <laughs> kept us uh, going for sure. Yeah. God bless the Salvation Army during that. How, how you mentioned, you know, jumping in a car and, and driving around getting gas, but it seems to me looking at that video, 
that a lot of the places that you needed to go probably weren't accessible by a car, right? I mean, because of debris or because it's now a lake. So how did you do that? Well, we did drive around. I mean, as soon as the water receded, you know, you had to be very careful. There were some roadways that weren't cleared and you'd have to go around. And, and we did some things that, you know, and I'm sure every reporter and photographer who covered Katrina did this to some extent where you get out of the car, you know, you stop, you get out of the car, you look ahead and you're like, okay, it's clear. Or I can move that so our tire doesn't hit that, which may not have been the safest thing to do because, you know, there were sharp objects, again, live wires, as Dave said, and we were all trained for that. We were trained not to, you know, touch things like that. So, but yeah, we did get around and there was a lot of activity, of course, around the Superdome, a lot of activity right in the core area. Um, and the way that Will dispersed the crews, it was we'd have a few crews that were going out to other areas to cover stories um, on you know, other coastal communities that were hit. And then we'd have a main crew that stayed in the heart of New Orleans because we didn't know what was gonna happen, right? There was a lot going on. And so you had to, you couldn't afford to lose your crew in New Orleans. Um, and, and that's what I remember. Well, do you agree with that? You sort of disperse the crews in a way that you would have maximum coverage. Well, what we uh, uh, had to do was to make sure that um, uh, there were um, uh, resources available in the areas that you, in the direction that you were going. So when we did disperse the crews, what we, what we had, we had help from uh, folks at News 12 um, that were doing phone calls and trying to find out where were there were um, uh, gas stations or uh, where, where electricity was, because without electricity, there was no way of getting fuel to begin with. But, um, but in, in, in my case, as the, uh, as the general manager, I had to always listen to what I was hearing from the people in the field. You know, um, you, you, you have a vision in your mind as a, as a senior leader, uh, what you would like to have on your air, the way you would like to have this story covered. And, um, and you, you wanna have this full blown 360 degree look at uh, the, the, the tragedy and the victories. And um, it, we, we found that, um, uh, uh, that the victories were, the, the story, you know, the, the tragedy was, was Katrina and its impact, but then there were people there who were overcoming um, uh, the, the problems that they experienced. And I would get feedback from the folks in the field about, you know, there's something really interesting going on here, something really good going on here. And, uh, and, it, and what we, or we would see something uh, on, the, on the wires and, but we would try to make sure that there was a, a path or a course for our teams to get there and to get back to the satellite truck or to, or to get to a location where we can get that video in. Because that's, that, that's always challenging. That was always challenging for us. Uh, as a 100% high definition entity at a time when HD resources were so, were, 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 were so scarce, that was also part of our thinking. So, but, it, but as it turns out, it, it became a, a, an issue where I really trusted uh, the folks in the field and, and listened to them. And, uh, and the story was their story. These are the stories that they found. These are the, these are the things that they thought were important. 
and we went with it and as a result that's how we found our success you know we had to uh I, we had to trust each other too because remember you wouldn't uh, i, I want to stay down there forever i remember because it was so interesting but you brought us back to new york and then brought another team in. You remember that? Well, I, I don't, I can't remember how many that, days. That you... was my, that was my city of the siege experience. Right, they exactly. They don't let people stay in that, in that zone right. uh, for long periods of time because it does impact them. And you understand it. And, and you know, there, there are, there are managers out there who, you know, are kind of ruthless that way and say, gee, yeah. you know, I, you got to cover the story and that's, you signed up for this, but, but <laughs> you didn't sign up for, for, to, to be mentally minded. Whacked, uh, I remember, and I remember, remember Frank Uciardo uh, mm -hmm. was going to replace me and he comes into my office when I had just got back in and I'm all, you know, discombobled from everything and gobsmacked by what I'd seen. And, I, and he shows up in a suit and all these binders under his arm. I'll never forget it. And he goes, can you give me some advice? Because <laughs> I'm going to be going down to New Orleans. And I went, yeah, yeah put take some the jeans. suit off, get rid of those. And what are you, what are you doing? What's all in there? And he goes, well, I have an interview tomorrow with the, with the mayor. And I went, the mayor he's available at an 8 30 uh, news conference every morning in the street forget that and just start walking down these streets frank find right. a place go to the bike find a victory find find, find victory. it because i remember the story we were just driving down the street there's a guy with a big old shotgun sitting on a porch like this and we call it last man standing because he said i'm the one left in this neighborhood and we all talked about it as we were leaving i'm gonna stay and I'm protecting everybody's property. What a great story. Mm -hmm. And that was just seen with a, just by walking down a street, you know. And, and Nigel, and I, I don't know, we shared crews too, because I remember Jade's photographer, Nigel, I worked with him a couple of times. And I can't believe anybody would ever put a gun on Nigel. He's like the nicest guy on the planet, right? Well, uh, well Jade, so, and, Jade and Nigel were, were yeah. me, they were famous together. They, uh, yeah. they, they, were, they, they, they were able to symbiotically um, feed off each other's energy and to create stories that were just amazing. I think that they, they were able to pull out stories that other people passed on basically because of the compassion that they felt. And, and the fact that they were so good as family people, I, I think that that's something that worked in our favor too. We, we, we had, we, uh, people in our team, we had families and we had compassion for uh, for people based on our sense of of love of family and love of 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 people and and that showed and that's how we were able to pull off you know all our, our unique stories there's one right now where where dave found this this one unique guy uh, tell us about that dave well, his name is mike and this is in past christiana mississippi that's where hurricane katrina that's ground zero for hurricane katrina right here you could see his house was leveled this is the guy i don't know if you heard in the beginning uh, explainer uh, montage video. He talked about how he had his grandson's boogie board and it blew him through the house, blew him upstairs, and he's holding on his boogie board, finally got out of an, a tree or out of a window into a tree. His his clothes were blown off. He's sitting up there, I think it was nine hours, holding onto a tree for nine hours, naked. Mm -hmm. You know, while, while Hurricane Katrina just, you know, the storm surge, which was what, what was storm surge there? About 20 feet, it was huge. And, um, and look at him. He just, he had nothing but these uh, smiles and, and would laugh through this whole thing. But he said, he says, uh, that's the only way he could get through it. It's just to laugh about it because that was, is, that's his house. But the key is you found him and you were, you were sensitive yeah. to him and sensitive to his story. And, yeah. and, and he related to you human to human. And, and that's, that's how stories get made. It's, it's, it's that, it's that personal yeah. touch. 
that 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 sense of compassion when you look at people, and um, and as I was mentioning, Jade and Nigel and 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 even you, Dave. Dave, who who were you shooting with uh, uh, most of the time when you were down there? Was it, was it probably Ofer Cohen? Ofer Cohen, that's right. Yeah, Ofer. But I also we we weaved crews together. I know mm -hmm. too. But Ofer too, and Ofer couldn't be more empathetic. Yeah. Uh, uh, during all of that stuff. Yeah, and, so, that, yeah. and that's it. That's the key. You know. You know. I, I think. I think good reporters and and photographers and producers, if if they can if they can tap into their sense of empathy and kindness and warmth, um, people pick up on that. Especially people who are in distress. You know, they, they come to you, you know, uh, uh, when we covered uh, uh, the first World Trade Center uh, attack and uh, there was a there was a, uh, a reporter on our team. His name is Chris, Chris O'Donnell, Chris, Chris, Christopher Donahue and, and Chris was wheelchair bound. And when he called me, he said, you know, there were people coming out of the building and their faces were covered with soot because we didn't know what was happening. And, and Chris, um, uh, being wheelchair bound, thought it was an obstacle at first because um, the fire department pulled all of these hoses across the streets and he wasn't able to get his wheelchair past them. So I said, Chris, just wave at him and wave at him. And you know, people recognized him when they came out of that building and they came to him. And they came to him based on the fact that he, the compassionate stories that he did, that they knew that he would understand what they had just gone through. And I think that's, that's what makes stories. I also would say that those were my best stories, the ones that I just walked yeah. upon. You know, and Nigel and I did a lot of that. Shout out to Nigel McGregor, who's an incredible photographer, lives in the Dallas area now, and part of our Southwest-based crew for HD News and Will Wright. Um, we had quite the adventure covering so many storms, including Hurricane Katrina. He worked with me on live shots uh, throughout New Orleans. And yes, um, we... Our favorite stories were the ones where we could just go out and find something. It wasn't something that was dictated. It wasn't something that was on the wire. And you saw a lot of that from Dave Barker as well. Um, he was the king of finding those kinds of stories. It was so much fun to watch Dave um, do these stories. So I want to ask both Will and Dave as we, as we segue into the next part of this program for sort of closing and final thoughts about um, tips and lessons learned and um, you know things that have been left behind within you after covering Hurricane Katrina. Well, from, from my point of view is always, always tap into uh, the heart of the, of the people. Um, recognize that, that they're going through something that's, that's unique in their lives. And if you're sensitive to what they're, what they're going through, um, you, can, you can get them to tell you their story. You don't just run up to them and stick a mic in their face and ask, how do you feel? Um, show the empathy, show that you care. Um, and and if, they, if they don't wanna talk, they don't wanna talk and, and, and so be it. But, but recognize why they don't wanna talk because that too is the story. Yeah, you don't ever ask that question. I learned that. I, I remember it was 
really, really sad what happened. And I and I asked that question, how do you feel about this? A father had just lost his son in this incredible way inside his own house. And and I just remember coming up to the door and he just slammed that door as he should have right on my face and my microphone and just said, well, how, how do you think I feel? I'll never forget that. So I, I have another question that I really wanted to know how he felt. I really did. But I but he, he didn't know me for, you know, so mine was always, um, you know, how is your heart feeling right now? That's usually my question. You know, what's what's going on in your heart right now? Um, and that always got him a little more, a lot more empathetic and, and kind of calmed him down from from a stranger with a microphone because he's just and, and you're right will that microphone always i had it pointed toward him but i always had it at my side until until i could tell they felt safe and then the microphone came up never that way because that that'll get you you know that it, it almost it looks arrogant right like you deserve to you deserve to uh, you know chastise these people and that's not it you you know you know you, de I, you deserve to be humble i think mine was always um, would you like to share your story? You know, that was the question that I started with, especially when I knew that someone had lost a family member, you know, would you like to share your story with us? Mm -hmm. Because maybe it could bring comfort to, to your family and to others. Um, it is a difficult, difficult thing to do that reporters do so that we can all, you know, hear these stories. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you so much, both of you, for giving us your tips, your advice on, you know, how to make a story. And this was an incredible story that we covered. So we're going to move now to um, taking these lessons and putting them into action um, and mentoring. And the Will J. Wright Mentoring Foundation, which I think um, could best be introduced by Will J. Wright himself. Well, first, I, I, I want to apologize to Chris O'Donnell for butchering your name earlier. I was just um, the broadcast found mentoring foundation that I um, that that I'm we're talking about today is something that I uh, had created um, when I was working for a general manager who uh, ref refused to pay for um, any of my attendance uh, at any of the uh, journalism conferences. And so I um, had to somehow come out of it my own pocket. So I figured, well, okay, I will call it a foundation and raise funds on my own. And I will go to um, um, uh, these, these uh, conferences. And, and my goal was to provide coaching and mentoring to the journalists who were at these conferences. And the conferences I'm specifically talking about is the NABJ, AAJA, NAHJ. And um, and and these were these were conferences that were um, uh, really important to to new and young uh, journalists. And so the the key is is it's it's really difficult to get a lot of journalists uh, to uh, uh, get for them to get feedback, regardless of where you are in uh, in the business. And so the the key is if you can get immediate feedback to people. Um, when they need it, not because they're at a conference or because they um, they uh, they uh, attended a a, class, a a college session, but there are people who actually need mentoring when it's important moments, such as someone is about to do their first performance appraisal. Um, 
how do you get that performance? How, how, what do you talk to your, your boss when your boss wants you to criticize yourself? How do you do that? And how do you do that comfortably? That's some of the things that you want to talk about. How do you develop, how do you, how do you develop your leadership skills? Um, how do you refine your skills? Um, and for, for people of color in the business, how do, how do they stay in the business? What, how, do they, how do you retain them? And so all of this is part of what the foundation goals were and, and what my goals were. Um, and so I'm asking uh, uh, folks to uh, uh, consider uh, this new project, that, um, that, that, that new venture, and has become an early adopter of this. And I'm using a computer-based system uh, as mentoring network, and it's designed to provide coaching when it's needed on demand. Um, it's an app that was created and uh, you get a text message for quick feedback, uh, urgent responses for immediate issues, uh, job appraisal tips. Um, those, are, those are moments when you actually need advice, not necessarily when you go to NABJ in July or AAJA in August. You need it now. So the key is, is to, to be able to provide that. So who are the mentors? Uh, who, 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 who am I trying to organize this with? Uh, uh, members of journalism associations, retired and active news professionals, and journalism teaching professionals. That's <laughs> and all of the above. Uh, and if if we get a really good consortium of uh, of people to to give quality mentorship, then we'll have enduring mentoring uh, connections. And that's also part of it is um, is to is to have good relationships with people. And talking about relationship with people. Uh, Randall Pinkston, Cora Cervantes is joining us. Um, Randall and I um, uh, met each other um, uh, in, in, in school. <laughs> you know, we were in the uh, Michelle Clark Fellowship together at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. Cora Cervantes and I worked together at NBC. Um, Cora, younger than me by decades, but oh, my goodness, what I've learned from her, she is like a... Um, my uh, my 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 what's new in 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 the minds of young journalists czar uh, whenever i i felt that i needed to get in touch with what young people were thinking cora was always on point uh, in terms of helping me understand that so we had these professional connections that were really unique and uh, it's the same with dave barker david dave barker and i worked together um, uh, uh, back at KRIV in Houston uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and we uh, stayed together for quite a long time uh, uh, in both uh, relationships where we, where we counseled and talked with each other about um, uh, what is uh, uh, the next great things that we should be doing as professionals. So mentoring is like a 360 degree um, uh, effort where there are people who are younger than you that you learn from, people who are your age that you learn from, and people who are older than you that you learn from. But it is, it is something, if you have a really good consortium, a really good connection of professionals, and the goal here is to have this, these professional connections with people who are determined to do well in the business, young people who are determined to do well in the business, and bring them into this mentoring consortium, they will be able to get the type of information and the type of counsel they need when they need it, as opposed to times when um, uh, they're set in some time out in space and time uh, at, a, uh, at a conference. Um, 
you can see um, uh, here uh, the technology uh, powered by Pushfar. It's a, a mentoring software technology company. Um, I did a lot of research to uh, find out um, uh, if a company would be able to provide this type of service. Um, uh, I talked with Pushfar. Um, uh, we had many conversations, and uh, they agreed to help me work uh, work on this. And they created an app, uh, a carve out. Of, uh, of their uh, technology platform, uh, which is very specific to the mentoring foundation. And we can, and uh, that's also part of it. But more importantly, the reason I was able to, to get Pushfar uh, involved was um, uh, I got a grant from Latico to be able to, to pay for it. Um, I had uh, in the past, as I mentioned, um, uh, created the um, foundation so that I can attend events uh, and 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 reach uh, uh, journalists that way, but this is this 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 pushes it into uh, another realm, and I uh, really think that uh, with Latiku's generous gift, um, the mentoring idea that I have using an app and getting immediate responses is going to be. Is, is going to be stratosphere of difference in terms of the success that that people will experience by having good mentors, good mentorship. So thank you, Jade and Paul, uh, for the grant. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're welcome. And we're so proud to be associated with um, the foundation. And so, you know, I, uh, I, 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 Asked, I had conversations with uh, Randall and Cora and, and Dave earlier, and they, they, we wanted to talk about, you know, what what is successful mentorship to you? And I'd like to start with Randall. Uh, thank you, Will, and congratulations um, to you for another superb, brilliant idea. Uh, Will and I go back along, well, yeah, we can say that, more than a few days. Um, but may I just make a comment about the previous session? Uh, I tried to put it in chat, but it didn't work. Um, uh, Jade, Paul, Dave, the, the job you guys did covering Katrina was absolutely awesome. And what stood out for me as a reporter in the field was that you had a boss back at home base who listened to you. There have been a few occasions in my career when I've been out in the field and the boss back at home base was telling me what the story was and I'm looking at it and it's not that. And it's a heck of a thing where you have to fight <laughs> with, an, with an EP who's sitting in New York and you're in Tora Bora and they're telling you that there's been a major change and you're saying, no, everything is the same. <laughs> and they're insisting that you change your script and you don't have any more bird time. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going too deep in the woods, but Will- no, but that's, kind of that's valid because that, <laughs> that too is, you know, you're, you're a, a good boss is also uh, to some degree a mentor. If, yeah. um, if, if they trust you and, and they can coach you to have better stories, um, you coach people to have better stories by finding out what the story is through their eyes. Yeah, and, and, and the trust relationship really is key, mm -hmm. I think. And um, it wasn't that there was a distrust relationship. It was that somebody saw something hit the wire and the wire was wrong and the wire is not always right. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, but congratulations to you, Mr. Wright. Um, and then I enjoyed working for you in our brief sojourn when you were running a BET Nightly News at CBS. So I've been thinking about this question about who were the most important mentors in my life. And I've had many mentors, 
But one of the earliest and one of the most important was a man who saw in me the capability of becoming a reporter when I had no interest <laughs> in being a reporter. This is before you and I met Will. His name is Dave Meir. Dave was a graduate of the University of Illinois uh, School of Journalism, and he had had an automobile accident and ended up uh, in a wheelchair. And no one would give him a job. This is long before Americans with the Disabilities Act. Uh, and he finally found a job at a little station in Jackson, Mississippi, putting the commercials inside films because they wouldn't let him work in the newsroom. But Dave knew more about news than anyone. And time changed and there was a license challenge and the news director quit and they needed somebody to run the newsroom and said, oh, Dave has a degree in journalism. Let him do it while we find somebody new. Well, Dave became the longest running news director there and he saw in me the possibility that I could become a journalist and I had no interest, but I listened to what he told me. And so my first mentor in news was somebody who convinced me that I should try it, but he used a little trick because he saw me hanging around the photographers and I'm gonna do something that's real, real, real like uh, antediluvian here. There was a time when we used this thing called film and there were um, editing systems where you had to scrape the emulsion off the film, put the tape on it to make your edits. Am I relating to anyone here? Anyway, um, Dave saw me hanging around with those guys and he said, well, here, here's a camera. You can go out and take pictures and here's a light meter. And if you do some good pictures, we'll put it on TV. And so I'm running around trying to find Rex and the rest. So he, he kind of sucked me into the newsroom using an interest that I had and then eventually getting me to do what he wanted me to do, which was to become a reporter. So mentors sometimes often will see possibilities in you that you do not see in yourself. And that to me is the most important thing about mentorship, a mentor who is able to, to envision a future for you, uh, to, to pull out qualities, uh, to, to, to teach you uh, how to improve the core material that you have within you, um, to, to, to make you a great journalist or great in whatever profession uh, that you're pursuing. I can, I can never sing enough praises about Cora. She must be tired of me telling people how much I really appreciate it. So Cora, tell us, tell us your idea of uh, mentorship and what makes you a good mentor. mentor. <laughs> oh, thank you for your kind words, Will. Um, I have to say it's, uh, journalism can be tough, but it's made such a, a rich experience beyond the stories because of the people that you get to work with. And so I'm really grateful that I have the opportunity to work and to learn so much from Will, which I think speaks a lot to this topic. Um, I learned a lot about, to redefine and rethink about mentorship, I guess in the last, I would say three or four years. And um, you know, as we know, journalism is not a linear career path. And so having people that can guide you and give you a sense of um, not only what choices to make in terms of like the technical aspects of your work, but also the way that you climb and navigate in a way that, um, I think yields not only a benefit for you, but for uh, a lot of other folks that are also coming up in the space or moving through it. And so um, to that point, uh, something that I learned to embrace in a way that um, yielded in dividends was a notion of, of peer mentorship and intergenerational peer mentorship specifically in the sense that, you know, I mean, I would say I will, the comparison in terms of how much I learned from you to what I could offer you, I mean, the, 
you know, decades of work experience that I can only hope to have one day. Um, but what was great about um, our interactions was that there was an absolute openness to learn from each other. There was mutual respect for our journeys into that newsroom. And I, also in my mind, there was like a keen awareness of just, um, you know, the, the trail that you blazed. You know, I mean, like the fact that I'm on this panel about Lattice, which is a, a program that I use at work every day and that, you know, you're, you're tied to this. It's to me, it, it speaks to the way that you're able to, to build meaningful um, relationships that yield amazing work. Um, and so I would say that, like for me, mentorship is being able to build those relationships with people your age, older, that are at different points so that you can feel comfortable asking questions that you have about, about your career. And so, you know, it's that it's, you created a, a, a space that was welcoming, that was enriching, and it, 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 it was never formal. You know, I think sometimes people, I have tons of friends, they'll mm -hmm. say, well, how do you get a mentor? Like, what, what is it? Right. And that's not even a conversation about advocates or sponsors, just the concept of mentorship. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, you don't really like call someone up and say, like, hey, can you be my mentor? You could do that. But what I have found is it just it develops organically between, mm -hmm. you know, individuals, one that have a desire to to share what they know and people that are receptive to receiving receiving that knowledge. And so, um, like I said, part of that goes into creating that comfort. And so, for example, in the case of Will, you know, my you know, we, we talked about this previously. My job interview with him lasted almost, you know, two hours in the sense that we, we, he was so thorough in the questions that he asked. There was a desire to understand um, what were my long-term goals, what, um, what our values were, what our approaches was in the newsroom. And so even those questions set it up so that on my first day of work coming in, once that whole process worked out, we already had a sense of where we were coming from. And so to me, I think that's something that I found incredibly valuable. Not just, you know, as journalists, we go out and we ask questions and we operate with empathy, but that has to carry into the newsroom. And that's something that will, I think, um, like just personified um, in everything that he did and with every touch point that he had. So I would say that um, building a space that feels comfortable with his trust, where people are aware of the stories and what they're bringing in and that it's valued and that that's able to carry through into the work that you do and also the way that you navigate your um, your career path. And also, you know, to Will's point, giving people opportunity to shine and um, paying it forward and being able to lift as you climb. And so I think being able to understand those and then moving to that next part, which is understanding what it's like to have an advocate and to have a sponsor and being able to navigate the fact that some people will play multiple roles in your life. And there's people that will play a certain role if you learn how to to navigate a lot of those areas. But to me, mentorship is probably the first one that helps you to understand a lot of those things. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes a lot of sense. You know, uh, uh, Jade is, uh, is a, a very um, formidable <laughs> person when it comes to her determination to make things really right. And, uh, and we had a lot of conversations about um, uh, what makes good stories and how things, how, how, how things should be uh, are, are phrased in terms of, uh, of uh, the use of uh, people. And, and, you know, the long way around is Jade had no idea how much she was teaching me in the conversations that we had with each other. And it's, and it's so interesting that, that um, uh, people, and, and Cora said it, people say, you know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to someone and ask them to be my mentor. And it's organic, you know, you're, you're mentoring all the time. You know, you're having conversations with people and, uh, and, and, and 
Cora, um, Cora and I, yeah, we, we, we talked for two hours the first time we met each other, but what Cora didn't know at the time was that I had just so slammed and, uh, and, and my boss said, give her 15 minutes, just give her 15 minutes and, and just see what she's like. And I just couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop because there was just so much there. And so that's, that's what good mentorship is, is that learning that you can learn from people that you're teaching. And that's, that's also, that's a great part of it. We do have a question, um, Will, and maybe Randall might want to take this because he did mention something like this, but how do you deal with those who you'd expect to be your sponsor or advocate, not giving you the support you need? And that's from our good friend, Christopher Nelson. Hi, Chris. Yeah, that is a situation that unfortunately you may encounter um, as, as you move through your career. My advice would be twofold. First, sometimes people don't respond the way you think they should, not because it has anything to do with you. You don't know what people are dealing with in their own lives. So you should never assume that what you feel to be rejection is because of you. It could be the day, it could be any number of things. So my first suggestion would be to continue to try to communicate with the person who's supposed to be your sponsor, your mentor. Don't give up on them. The second piece of advice is look around and find other people who can fill in that information void, that advice void that you need, that you thought you were going to get from your sponsor, but that sponsor isn't available to you at that time. Um, and sometimes you will find that people who initially appear to be adversaries or appear to be unhelpful, um, it's part of the, I hate to say this, but the game that they play to see how you respond to adversity. I'll never forget, um, well, I won't use this name because he's, <laughs> but th there was a boss at, um, at CBS and he had a reputation for giving people a hard time. And I'll never forget, I was in the, in the, in the, uh, in the newsroom one day and uh, I saw him just, I couldn't hear what they were saying, but visually it looked like he was berating one of my colleagues. And that person uh, left his office in tears. And this manager, looking at this person walking away, smiled and chuckled, which I thought was horrible you know because he was just having some fun with this at this person's expense to mm. quote unquote toughen her up mm. um but we all know that there are bosses who are like that mm. um and and that's you know that's their personality that's their problem and finally the, the third thing that i always advise young people young people anybody who comes to me with a, a, an issue that seems to be insurmountable is this you can't change other people but you can always change the way you respond to a situation so those are my three pieces of advice don't give up don't assume find some help from somewhere else and you know work on yourself there's a there's a question which is it seems almost rhetorical considering who's coming from uh asa aaron's asks, uh, uh how do you hire such sensitive reporters and <laughs> It's rhetorical because Ace is one of the most sensitive people I've ever worked with. And you, you, you talk to them, you, you sit down and you have a conversation and you look at their work and you try to, and you, you know, it's, it's genuine. You look for people who have genuine empathy, um, people who 
or uh, people you would like to have in your life, you know, uh, because you're going to spend a whole lot of time with these folks and your success is tied to theirs. And if you're the type of uh, manager that you like bulldog reporters and you like people who are um, uh, uh, nasty and pushy because that's the, that's the type of place you want, well, that's what you're going to get. And you're going to get a shop that's miserable. And, you know, my, my thing is I, I, I like a place where people are happy and at ease and, and, and really productive at doing, doing their work. And they love doing their work. And uh, you're not going to get that if um, if you wake up every morning saying, "Gee, I got to go and I got to look at these people. I got to talk to these people. I can't stand them." <laughs> That's no kind of life. And believe me, we're all. This, your job is your life, and you decide what type of life you want. And you you coach people uh, to be that type of person who they need to be. If uh, if I encountered people in the workplace who are not living up to the ethical and moral standards that I expected them to have, I, they would be fired. And it wasn't fired out of negativity or spite. It's because they were not worthy of being in the environment that I was trying to create. You know, go somewhere else where, you know, you, you know that, that Randall's boss uh, person at CBS, he, he'd love you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the type of uh, environment that I wanted to create. So there's another question um, in the Q&A uh, from Christopher again, asking what are the qualities that make up a good mentor? And so I'll put that out there, but I also want to do the reverse of that. What are the qualities that make up a good mentee? Somebody that can actually receive this information and do something with it. Uh, and I, Dave, uh, Dave yeah, Mark. you know what? I, I think this business just, uh, it draws and breeds insecurity. I think we can all agree with that. I think I, I worked in Hollywood, lived in Hollywood for a number of years. Same thing with that business. I'd meet these amazing stars and got to know some of them and they were really insecure. Um, and so I think if you look for a mentor who's insecure too, uh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have problems. And that's what I did in the beginning. How good am I? And, and I get it, it, you know, I'd have this tape and I bring the tapes home and then, and I'm all, you know, I, I remember being on the phone too and playing tapes and it's like, what am I doing? I just want comp. I wanted compliments back then. And when I finally decided that I want, instead of saying what kind of reporter do I want to want to be your anchor, it was what kind of person do I want to be? Once I started having kids, I started asking that question. And that was a such, uh, that's when I started becoming I, I think who I be, became. And I think uh, if you look for a mentor that way, who's going to make me a better reporter? I don't know if that's a really good question. And all I remember, uh, my two mentors are you, Will, uh, and, and you've always been my creative mentor because I think you and I are kind of in the same box, which is out of everybody's box. Um, but uh, my other one is Marcy. Uh, I knew her as Marcy Christensen or Marcy Burdick. And I knew her when she was a, a weather person uh, in a 169th market. And I was a weekend anchor or something. Mm -hmm. And she was always knitting and this and that. And she went on to be what president of RTNDA and stuff. But yeah, I remember getting managers. So she, yeah, yeah. she was, she was, well, yeah, well, to digress a little bit, our boss left. We were both up for the job of news director. She was uh, 20 and I was 22. 
or 23. <laughs> and I was angry because I didn't get the news director's job and she did, you know, that kind of thing. So I laughed and all that stuff, you know, all that. And we became such great friends over the years. But I remember get, um, they flew me into Oklahoma City for uh, for a job interview for it was an anchor job. And they were showing me all their suits and they were bringing it all your anchors. You're going to have this bracket suits and this. And I'm going, wow, that's weird. And uh, then they send me to a mall with a photographer and said, find a story. Uh, I said, okay. And, and then you're going to, you're going to have two hours and you got to bring it back in time and have it edited. Well, this was a new, and just to make a long story short, this is a, a resurgent mall. It had been closed and brought back and the Oklahoma Sooners, I think it was out of that city. Uh, they had just won a national championship after being down for 30 years. So I equated these two things, the malls and the Oklahoma and video back. I thought it was brilliant. You know, I get back there, we're sitting in the general manager's office, and he looks at that, and I'm just like this, going, wow, he's going to give me this job. So, you know, and he just said, that would never air on this station. That is, that is so weak. I, and I'm looking, I'm saying, can you, and my heart starts pounding. I said, what's wrong? And he didn't have any specifics. And I basically ran out of there. I literally ran out of there, grabbed whatever I had in my briefcase, started walking down the street, trying to find the airport. And the assignment editor, who was my friend who kind of um, got me in there, uh, chases me with his car and says, that's why he treats everybody. And I said, take me to the airport. Take me to the airport. And I remember driving back, uh, getting to the airport and calling Marcy. And she said, who are you? Is that what you want to be? And she said, do you want to be that guy? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to be the guy on the road? And I'll never forget her saying that. I said, I want to be the guy on the road, you know, walking away from that. You know, just to walking away from that, just because he mistreats everybody kind of guy or gal. So um, that's when she, she was, anytime I have a, uh, uh, like an analytical issue or, or something, I, I don't think I'm many layers. I'm kind of just there, black and white. And she's like super layered person. Uh, that's, that's when the call is always going to, to her. That's a great mentoring story. And I have one, uh, Will Wright. <laughs> Um, Will quickly became my mentor uh, once I came to HD News, um, and it was because he was so generous with his time, which he had very little of, and also with his ideas. Um, and for me, mentorship was about someone giving me feedback, but not always telling me you're right or you're wrong, I'm right or I'm wrong. He never put it that way. He'd look at a script and he'd say, what if you went back to that last part? I'm gonna circle this, okay? <laughs> what if you go back to this last part? I think it could change, you know, I think it needs a little more of this. And then he let me send it back. And if, he's, if I sent it back and he thought it was great, I would get a phone call. And how often, you know, does your, you know, general manager call you and say, hey, great job on that redo or great job. He did that um, and when he had, you know, something critical, he'd also say that, but it became this thing that I could go back and forth with him. And one time I was upset with him about something and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it's that I didn't get to go on some assignment that I wanted to go on, <laughs> but I called him and I, he, I'd been trying to call him and I called him and I had a few minutes and he was on the road, he was on the highway. And he was like, oh, hold on, Jade. I know you're upset, so I'm gonna pull over. <laughs> So he pulled over on the side of the highway and he talked to me for 20 minutes and we came to an understanding about why I was not assigned the story that I wanted to be assigned. I just wasn't close enough to get there in time, but I just made sure that he knew that I wanted to go. I do have a question for Cora. Um, 
about mentorship. Uh, we want newsrooms, all of us, I think, on this panel want newsrooms to be a reflection of our society. So to include people of color and women. How do you think mentorship can address that? Um, well, I think that's an important question. And um, I think first off, if we want newsrooms to look uh, or to embody certain experiences, I think we have to be explicit in articulating that that's what we want. And so at the individual level, it's, um, I think, something that I, I try to do is I know there are, you know, there are students, for example, at my, you know, community college or my, you know, grad program or my undergrad program. So to me, part of it is, is that it's saying, well, I want, there's this perspective that's missing in the newsroom. Um, where is it, right? And I think it's easy sometimes for folks to say, well, we can't find anybody. But it's like, well, then you're not looking. You're not putting any effort to look. So you got to be explicit about wanting it and actively going and seeking it out. And for me, that's been going to NADJ and AHJA, AAJA and connecting with student interns that are there. And, you know, I don't, I don't know the full roadmap, but what I do know I can share, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's being able to identify and say like, Hey, I'm a, a person in my family that graduated from college. I don't, I didn't know anyone in journalism. I have a network and a portfolio. It's okay. You know, you, you don't, would it help? Yes, of course. But I think it's being able to show people like, hey, there's different pathways in and, you know, um, being being comfortable, just being explicit about saying you want the newsroom or it needs to look a certain way and just taking action steps. Because like I said, it's easy to say, you know, we can't find anybody, but people are there. They just need an opportunity. They need access and they need mentorship. We have uh, some questions and I, I want to just quickly go through them because we're, the time is getting tight and I promise folks I would keep him here forever. Um, have a, a, a question um, uh, from Seema, uh, a good friend out of Texas. Uh, um, love to hear how your experience with balancing covering a story is also being human with your desire to help suffering in front of you. Well, I, I, I could tell you, um, be human. Uh, it, is, it is okay um, to feel empathy in covering a story. It's okay to react in a very human way. We're not, we're not robotic, we're not machines. As a matter of fact, if you want to increase people's appreciation of you as a storyteller, then, then show that you care about the people you're telling the story about. Um, if you can't do that, then the story you are telling isn't gonna be genuine. Folks are gonna know that, they're gonna feel that, and, um, and they'll react accordingly. You will not, you know, I, 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 I think that it's important for, uh, viewers to know that you're doing it because you care about your profession, not because you're just there because you want to win a trophy or you want to win hardware, you know, that comes naturally. And then on top of that, that's a team, that's a team effort. You know, there are very few individual awards. Uh, you know, it's always, you're, you're always uh, as good as the people that surround you. So, um, so cover the story with heart, with passion and be okay with that. The other one uh, from uh, good friend, Stephanie Shelton, um, what would you tell someone as a mentor who says I'm being bullied by a producer and I have to work with? Um, bullying is, is, a, is a big problem in our business, you know, but I think that my experience with people who've been bullied in our, bullies in our business is their level of insecurity. They too, they're afraid of their own 
jobs. They're afraid to be able to be themselves and, and they're afraid what other people have to say about them. And, um, and I, I, I have very little compassion for people who are bullies because uh, it just shows that they are not good at what they do. And that's how, and that's how they, how it's how it manifests that and manifests their weakness. And I would say that it comes down to management as well. Mm -hmm. So you should feel free mm -hmm. to go to management and mm -hmm. say that you are being bullied. Mm -hmm. And I had such an episode when I worked with Will, and we won't get into names or anything, but my photographer called Will and said, there's a situation down here. And we were, I can't remember which city we were in, maybe in Houston at the time, covering yeah, I think story. it was Houston, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and before I knew it, Will Wright had flown to Houston. I was on a plane. He heard the story from my photographer, not from me, but he was there the next day. I woke up and Will Wright was at our hotel um, and he was talking to me first, getting the story, then getting the story from my photographer. And this was another individual on our staff and he handled it right away. So, I mean, it really comes down to management. Well, well the outcome was uh, he was a bully and he was fired on the spot. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. I didn't want to say that, but and, and that's a boss. <laughs> that's a boss. <laughs> so, so I think you know we've gone way long, but what a fantastic conversation! I think it's time for final question. And I see an individual that might sound familiar to you, Will, a Patricia Wright, asking for you to describe one of your mentoring successes. Uh, I think everybody on this panel uh, is a mentoring success from uh, from one way one way or another. And it's two way, you know, I never um, uh, considered any of you as my mentee, you were always my colleague. And, and as my colleague, it was important for you to succeed for me to succeed. And, and as, and, and for me, if my colleague, especially those who say I'm their mentor, if they go on to do great things, um, then I am really satisfied. I had a, a young man who I work with at NBC and um, he was a junior to me, only, only uh, uh, not only in age, but, uh, but, but also in, in, in terms of the job function, but we worked together as colleagues, one-to-one. -one. There was no distinction in my mind in terms of um, any, any delineation in terms of uh, his, uh, his work uh, or, or his abilities. But ultimately, he went on to another communications organization and got the exact same job I had uh, because he learned that from me. And that to me is mentoring success. Great. Thank you very, very much, Will. Um, we wish you the best success uh, in the Coaching Foundation. We're glad that we can be a small part of it. <laughs> Thank you also, Randall and Cora and Dave and Jade. Thank you. Yes, I'm so honored to be on this panel with Will, Dave, Randall Pinkston, whom I've been watching for many, many years. So it's so great grew, to be here. grew up watching Randall. <laughs> I grew up watching Randall. <laughs> he, he said it was okay to say that. And, and Cora Cervantes, thank you so much as well. I also want to give a shout out to our incredible team who put this on, Michelle Reinhardt, Alex Almeida, and Ryan Emmons, who are here with us all the time and who help us you know, put these shows on. So thank you so much. And John Lane, who is our photographer today. 
and the Latitude series of content, we've become content producers. I think it's because we're ex-journalists and we just can't help ourselves. But we have a Flight Academy coming up, and this one is going to be great. It's on mobile content creation. Back in the day, we heard Randall talking about shooting on film. And you know, after film, there were some very expensive cameras that, that all of these HD news folks used. I mean, $100,000 for a news camera that shot this HD in the early days. Well, now the trend is your iPhone. Right, your iPhone is an HD camera, and you know Tony Moronis um, from WCMH is an award-winning photojournalist, uh, multimedia journalist, and he's going to show us how to shoot and edit and do it all on that iPhone. Give me a great one. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks again to everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.